Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world, soon to be the number one YouTube channel when it comes to value investing in the world as well. Sitting next to my co-founder, Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. We hope everybody had a great weekend. We hope on Saturday morning, you're all excited to read uh, the Berkshire Hathaway Warren Buffett letter uh, that got sent out. Obviously, a lot of people in the investing world love to read that every single year. If this is the first time you are tuning in with us. Be sure to check out all of our work. Go to focuscompounding.com. Uh, Jeff blogs about ideas. He's also going to start um, writing up how many topics a week? Free topics. Uh, five. five. So five total posts, but mm-hmm. is, is it one a day? Yeah. Of topics? One okay, day, so yeah. one a day of um, of topics that's right. going to be random. A general investing topic, not yeah. a specific stock write-up. The stock write-ups are for the premium members. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so you can go over to Focus Compounding and do that. Also, go over to Focus Compounding. We're going to hop over to uh, the screen now. Join the Gannon Gazette. Uh, we are going to be very consistent about that now, once a week. And okay. it's going to be filled up with a lot of stuff. So if you want to join that email list for free, uh, go to focuscompounding.com on the homepage and enter in your email, and that will add you to the list. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter at focused compound. That's the best place to get a lot of information um, on us and all the content that we put out. As you can see at focused compound, um, everything pretty much goes out through there. So in today's podcast, uh, as I talked about it a little bit earlier, um, we are going to be talking about our thoughts on Buffett's uh, Berkshire letter. Okay. And you wrote three free write-ups this mm-hmm. weekend. Uh, one of them was called Ask Yourself. Um, where are we at? Ask Yourself, in what year would you have hopped off the Warren Buffett compounding train? Yeah. That was a great post. Next one was How Buffett Holds, the incredible importance of the contrasting trajectories of long-term winnings I'm sorry, winners and losers. Mm-hmm. And the last one was the element of compound interest. When retaining earnings is the key to compounding and when it isn't. So do you have any sort of summary for these three posts? Obviously, everyone listening, you can read these for free at focuscompounding.com under Jeff Gannon. Yeah, sure. So the first one is basically, historically, Berkshire Hathaway had talked about book value per share and growth. And that's the number of people focused on. Now they're talking about um, their market value growth. So because of that, you get a year-by-year breakdown in the um, beginning of the uh, annual letter, which talks about, I mean, it shows you the uh, returns each year in the market. And it doesn't show you any more book value that's been removed. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I really focused in on that idea of um, when people who are like long-term shareholders or talk about being long-term value investors, people who would kind of think of themselves as following in Buffett's footsteps and stuff in terms of their investment philosophy would probably have sold out of Berkshire. Uh-huh. And basically what I talked about is the times when the um, stock price went up a lot in one year, you know, that being the main reason. So I talk about how it's easy to kind of hold a stock that's going up 30% a year or something um, and how hard it is to hold a stock that goes up 100% or something, but how lumpy the returns in Berkshire have been. So um, at their peak point, Berkshire compounded at probably about 25% a year from like 1965 to 1998, something Mm -hmm. in that range. 
Um, but it wasn't a very even 25%. And we've experienced this ourselves owning stocks um, where the compounding is good in them, but they go up 100% in a year or something and people think about trimming it back or getting out of the stock or whatever. And so I talk about some of that, um, what years they were. Now, there haven't been any since about the late 1990s. Mm -hmm. So since the late 1990s, Berkshire has had some good years, but it hasn't had some amazing years. And so there haven't been the kind of years that would cause you to sell out, Mm -hmm. you know? And I thought an interesting part was actually uh, these last couple paragraphs um, when you concluded the write-up and you said, learning from Buffett's success as an investor has two parts. One, you need to know how he compounded like he did and try to copy what you can. And two, you need to know how to let a successful investment, once found, compound for you for as long as he has. Right. And I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's the hard part. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just think of all the investors I know who would have sold out at those points. And you even said, you're like, I'm sure I never would have stayed in Berkshire stock till no. 2020 if I'd bought it in 1965. Right. I'm less sure of where I would have sold out, why, and if I ever get back in. Yeah, and I talk about details about that, about like the 1970s and trying to bring people back to what stocks look like then. I really think a lot of people would have sold out in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It would have been fairly easy to hold in the 60s. The stock started out as a net-net. It had this new guy coming in who was doing great capital allocation stuff in 67. They bought an insurer and all that. But in the 70s, the stock sometimes went up a lot, and there were some very cheap stocks out there. So it would be very... Um, Likely, I think that a lot of people would have sold out of that and bought some of those things, including some of the stocks that Berkshire um, bought. You know that Buffett bought for Berkshire himself. Mm-hmm. You know Washington Post and and some newspapers, some ad agencies, things like that. I talked about, which would have done great for you for like ten years, but they wouldn't have done great for you for twenty or thirty or or forty years the way that Berkshire ended up doing. Mm-hmm. That's the hard part. Let's give us a, a summary of the second article you wrote. How Buffett holds the incredible importance of the contrasting trajectories of long term winners and losers. Yeah. So um, he talked about this basically talking about businesses, but I was saying that there's a similarity in terms of how Buffett thinks about businesses and how he thinks about his stock portfolio. So businesses, he talks about how he's made some mistakes buying some of them, and this is in the letter, And uh, but that over time, the, th- the thing that happens is that the less successful businesses tend to grow less. And this was so interesting to me when mm-hmm. I was reading his letter because I thought of our conversation on um, you know selling in general, yeah. how if you were, or you think all individual investors, for example, they should sell less and really mm-hmm. just worry about buying. And then when uh, you know, the position runs, it becomes a bigger part of the portfolio and the losers essentially become such a small part of the portfolio. This is exactly what that reminded me of when I read in his letter. He must yeah. listen to Focus Compounding <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when people ask like what they should do as an individual investor, my main tip for them, which I say, you're not going to do this, but here's my suggestion, is study as much about investing as you can, you know, about finding the right stock for you during the year, and then just buy one stock. Yeah. And then forget about it. Just hold on to that. And what will happen is that your winners over time, if you put everything you saved that year into the winner. Now, this is assuming for individual investors that you're saving pretty similar amounts each year. You know, you could be in a different situation from that. But um, you just put all your savings from that year into a stock and then you forget about it. And the next year you go on, and you buy another stock. And mm-hmm. what will happen is the winners will compound and the losers won't compound as at as great a rate. And so they'll become like a smaller and smaller part of your portfolio over time. And so uh, I talked sort of the math about that and stuff about how even just within like a decade, I gave an example of a one company, assume that you like are compounding at 10% on average. Yeah. So I use that number because 
Berkshire includes the S&P 500 rated compounding since Buffett took over Berkshire. And so that's been 10% since mm-hmm. 1965. So I said, assume you're kind of average that way, but you have one stock that returns 20% a year for the first decade and another returns 5% a year. And I explained that like, if you start both as like 20% positions in your portfolio, right? One of them is going to shrink to being less than a 10% position, yeah. like 8% or something, I think mm-hmm. I said. And the other one will grow to being over a 30% position so that you have something that's like four times bigger um, going to the next decade in terms of how much it affects um, uh, your returns there. So that's what happens with Buffett. So a good example is like Coke for him, right, in his stock portfolio is that Coke became very overvalued in like the late 1990s, right? But he kept allocating new capital to other stocks, not bringing Coke back up to that level of whatever, the way that most people think about it. You know, mm-hmm. They would like think Coke should be a certain percentage of your portfolio. Or so like rebalancing it. Right, so. he didn't do that. So look at Apple. Apple's now what, I think it's like three times the size of Coke in terms of how much it matters to Berkshire now, mm-hmm. you know, after the big one. Do you think that's a good way to go about managing the portfolio? I think that it it's, could be, it's yeah. It's like the holding company. Mind. Yeah, that's the way that they do. I it. think that it really could be. Um, now it depends on what kinds of stocks you own. For the kinds of stocks that Buffett owns, I think it makes a great deal of sense. Um, if you were buying more of the gram type things, then rebalancing makes more sense, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you have high returns on equity and things like that, um, I think it makes a lot of sense to approach it the way that he does. And I talked about how he kind of thinks about businesses and stocks a lot the same way. Mm-hmm. He's never sold Coke. But he hasn't added to it, and he certainly thought it was overvalued in the 90s, and he let it get smaller and smaller part of the portfolio. He actually said that as well in the letter. He mm-hmm. wrote about, um, you know, how, and he always does say it out loud, but, um, you know, that they truly don't think anything different of their stocks, especially like when it comes to like a look through earnings perspective uh, to the actual businesses that they own. Um, and the last post that you wrote was, and again, this is all free on FocusCompound.com. Uh, the element of compound interest when retaining earnings is the key to compounding and when it isn't. Yeah, so this one is interesting. Buffett mentions a book that he's mentioned before, mm-hmm. uh, Common Stocks as Long-Term Investments. And he also mentions a review of the book, which he's mentioned before. He uses a different quote from it. Mm-hmm. But Keynes reviewed this book, um, The Economist. And he reviewed the book, and Buffett is quoted from it now. This is the second time that I can remember. He may have quoted from it more often than that in one of his shareholder letters. And he uses a different quote from it. But what he talks about is the importance of compound interest. Uh, Compound interest in the sense of retained earnings at companies working that way. Mm -hmm. So this book was written in the 1920s, 1924, something like that, I think. And um, it was interesting because it, yeah. So um, it there was much less attention given to the idea that stocks outperformed bonds over time because stocks had two components to them. One, the dividend yield, and two, the compound interest, mm-hmm. basically, the compound return. And the compound return is what we talk about with like return on equity, mm-hmm. right? And so um, that's what the book's about, and Buffett talks about that, and he talks about how it's interesting that not a lot of attention was given to the compounding part of it. Now, today, all we hear about is compounders. Sure. Like that, mm-hmm. right? But And I talk a little bit about that, about how much it's shifted that way. Some of the biggest stocks in the, in the world, in the U.S., um, are basically paying out nothing in dividends. Um, they're all about compounding, even at that size. And that's completely different from what it was back then. But what's interesting about it is the review that he talks about from Keynes gets into sort of... Um, the 
reasons why the stocks will outperform bonds, which at that time, though, you have to remember, in the early 1920s, stocks and bonds had very similar dividend, uh, very similar yields. Mm-hmm. Stocks, the bond yields and um, the dividend yields on stocks were very close, whereas today, you know, they're not as close. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, what did you think about the actual letter itself? I thought the letter was very good. Did you think it was kind of different than most of the letters that he's written? How so? It's just the overall, um, I don't know, it just the, I don't know, I don't want to say, he just didn't seem like his normal joke telling. Like, it just, the actual, like, um, way it was communicated just felt different to me than it has been it in the It felt like a very timeless letter to me. Yeah. I think some of the things they ta- he he's talked about, about like him dying, like him and Charlie, what happens when they, you know, die right. and blah, blah, blah. He talked about the, the story about the being sent a, a letter that said, you know, urgent for the information for the yeah. future, right, uh-huh. know, for a friend of his, um, and saying that both he and Charlie are past that point now. Um, it felt very timeless in terms of the kinds of concepts that were talked about. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot of talk about, uh, I feel like Berkshire's results for the year. Like Berkshire, for instance, had probably, I don't know if it's a record, but I don't know of another company. Well, probably like Saudi Aramco or something has has earned that much. But I don't know of U.S. companies that have earned eighty billion dollars in one year. Yeah, sure. Now, that's a weird accounting thing yeah. because it's due to a huge gain. Uh, Fifty, you can see it there. Fifty three point seven billion gain came from the uh, unrealized capital gains, mm-hmm. which is a different accounting thing from yeah, the past. Absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> but the actual underlying businesses basically are pretty much flat. Mm-hmm. The operating earnings, you know. And um, he really doesn't get into a lot of detail about that, talking about that, I felt. Um, yeah, he like talks it. about the accounting things a little bit, but I really felt like there was a lot of talk about like long-term sorts of things, about retained earnings, about um, just in general. He talked a little bit about how insurance has driven their results. It felt like a letter that could be written in any year. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, and, and he even hits on that point. Charlie and I urge you to focus on operating earnings, which were a little changed in 2019, mm-hmm. and to ignore both quarterly and annual gains or losses from investments, yeah, whether I, these are realized or unrealized. Yeah, I mean, I didn't do the math, but a huge part of the return is just the increase in Apple's yeah, market value. Yeah, definitely. And then, obviously, he talked about um, you know the the individual the comments that you just uh, wrote that post about, which mm-hmm. I would encourage everybody to read. But yeah, it's just overall, I don't know how to explain it, just the... Um, it just seemed different this letter than it, they have been in the past. Um, did you get that vibe as well? Yeah, or? I thought it was very. Um, I think there's a lot to learn from this letter. Mm-hmm. I really thought it had a lot that could have been written 30 years ago by Buffett too. Uh, a lot that really would help people understand how Berkshire compounded the rate it did. Mm-hmm. The discussion of the insurance stuff, as well as the discussion of the retained, retained earnings. earnings and yeah, that kind of stuff is a really good. Um, explanation of kind of how Berkshire worked and how it was able to grow as fast as it was. You mm-hmm. know? Um, it isn't really specific to this year that way. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some stuff in there. He talks about the non-insurance stuff and things like that. Yeah. But um, mostly, even that, I think he mostly talks about the really big ones, the utility and the railroad. Yep, yep. And in that, too, you know, they're retaining... The, so let's take the utility. So the utility at Berkshire is retaining um, all of its earnings, Literally all of it. I yeah. believe they've never, he says that they've never paid a dividend to Berkshire since they've mm-hmm. owned it. Um, and they've owned it for what, 20 years now? Mm-hmm. So that's amazing because, as you know, most, most utility stocks pay really high dividends. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it, how much do they pass through? Like, a lot, all of it, right? A lot. They yeah. pass through between, I'd say, two thirds and yeah. all of their mm-hmm. earnings, especially in terms of like cash earnings. Some utilities, I would say, are paying very close to all of their earnings out and they have to kind of raise debt over time. Um, maybe not quite that much. But literally, I can't think of many utilities that pay out less than, I'd say, about two-thirds of what I'd say their real free cash flow is. So it's like a bank or something like that. You know, Mm -hmm. They're paying very high amounts. What I liked about this letter was his focus on return on uh, 
tangible capital. Yeah. He spoke a lot. Yeah. Net tangible. Yeah. He talked a lot about that in this letter, um, which I thought coincided nicely to the video that we just did last week when we were talking about that. Um, you know, in so his, over the insurance table that they showed there, I actually did a calculation to see how much the float increased each decade and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. Now, there are acquisitions in there. They acquired Geico at one point and they acquired General Re, and those had very big um, difference, uh, very big additions to float, sort of. And for that. people listening on the podcast side, we're looking at an insurance table of the float in, in 1970, it was 39 million, and then in 2019, it was 129 billion. Yeah. And you can do the math there yourself in terms of the Kagers there, in terms of how much it grew each of those 10 years. But a lot of it is very much in line with Berkshire's um, growth and intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. So you have rates of, in fact, some of them is higher in the later period. The the later period is higher in the 2000s. But um, you have growth of often 20 to 30%. It's it's very impressive. um, There's a letter... um, it's for Semper Augustus. So if you look it up, you could just Google like Semper Augustus and, um, and you want go, it's want a, Google it? pull it up. Yeah, sure. It's Semper? a Semper Semper like S E M P E R the Latin word. Yeah. Augustus. Mm-hmm. And if you look that up, uh, you, you can find their letter. Uh, I don't know if they have their, yeah, they should have their letter there and it's a very long letter. It's a hundred and some pages. I forget. I, I read it. And, um, it has a very extensive discussion of Berkshire, but the part that's interesting about it is, um, the discussion of Berkshire. So what is it? 112 pages there. Yeah. Is that this year's letter? Uh-huh. I feel like this one was even longer. 2019. So it's not this year's letter. Oh yeah. Yeah. So maybe they don't have this year's letter up. Oh, oh here you go. It? Yeah. There you go. So it says it's a client letter and stuff, but it's, not really about that. It's really about Berk- a huge part of it's about Berkshire. It's a great letter, but a huge part is about Berkshire, and then other parts are about more general sorts of things. It's not very specific to what they're investing in. Money for nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a great discussion of the insurance uh, stuff with Berkshire, um, and just an idea of like how it works. So we've talked about this a little bit about like how some people have said it's hard to duplicate what Berkshire's done. Yeah. Because you can't just invest in anything you want. I think this is something that people overlook. Berkshire writes a very small, uh, all their insurance companies taken together write a very small amount of um, premiums versus their surplus. Mm -hmm. And there's reasons for that. Like they started making, they invested heavily in stocks early on and then the returns in stocks were amazing. Um, And some other reasons like that. I would, he estimates that Geico is probably writing at like, um, two times their statutory uh, surplus in terms of premiums, which is a normal level for a car insurer. But the other parts of Berkshire aren't. They're writing at very, very low levels. And so they, they're sort of overcapitalized. And that's how they can invest so much in stocks is that they have all this float that it, beyond the levels that regulators would require. And so he talks a little bit about that. I think it's useful just for people to understand that because I feel like when we look at microcap things and whatever, people are always talking about, oh, you just take over an insurer, you just whatever. Yeah, yeah. And you change it to <clears throat> invest in stocks and you can't really do that while writing the amount of premiums that mm-hmm. you would normally do. Well, Mon- would- Monisha actually talked about, I think in a, uh, a chat he gave how much harder it actually is to do. Yeah. Than a lot of people think it is. And that's true. And I think that Berkshire, some of it was luck about the timing mm-hmm. because they bought an insurer in 1967 and they did a lot of the investing in the early seventies, which was like the best time or one of the best times to buy. Um, and then some of it was the other things that they did having a good combined ratio in later years In the early years, their combined ratio wasn't that impressive. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, uh, his, the way he talked about float mm-hmm. in typical Buffett fashion, just really, um, simplifies it for people to understand. I thought this was a very educational letter for sure. I agree with you when you say that, um, you know, when such a profit is earned, we enjoy the use of free money and better yet get paid for holding it. I thought that was, um, you know, it was great. Um, what other thoughts? 
Yeah, and he he does say there, which he said this kind of thing before, that they're not going to uh, have an underwriting profit in 16 of the next 17 years. Yeah. So he still thinks that that was unusual, the 17 years that they just had. Um, for parts of it, it's probably true. I don't know, like the catastrophe stuff, though they don't do that much of it anymore. Um, but they have specialty businesses and things that probably could continue to write those levels. It's a, I think, I don't know, um, Some, I'm not necessarily as bullish on Berkshire as some people are. Um, in terms of just like the overall business, I don't think their returns can be that high. I think I said in the uh, third letter that we talked about that I don't expect them to be able to manage to compound it more than like 10% a year. I really don't. But I think that people underestimate the strength of their insurance business. They probably own the best insurance business in the world. Let's see. What else do we got here? Berkshire Hathaway Energy. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? My only thoughts are the retained earnings part of it. Yeah. So he talks about a good example. And all that they do about that. And of course, we're investing in a coal company. Um, but I did think that it was interesting that the. So it, it's interesting that Berkshire can do this in um, the utility business. All of their competitors basically have to pay out a lot in dividends because they're public companies. Yeah. That's what mm-hmm. they do. And no one in the utility business just reinvests everything into it, which is what they're doing. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. Uh, you know, people like dividends a lot. Sure. Yeah. And uh, the Berkshire didn't become the company it is by collecting a lot of dividends. The things they talked about, which I think are really helpful, our understanding is that they used Float to invest in a lot of companies that can retain a lot of earnings. You can see it right there. Yeah. A lot of those companies can retain a lot of earnings. Some of them can. Some of them buy back a lot of stock. The airlines, for instance, are buying back a lot of stock. They don't have that much that they can retain. But some of the others aren't. They do retain a lot. And over the time that he's been invested in them, they retain a lot. And so it's the combination of the float that they have plus the high investing companies that retain a lot of earnings. Over time, your returns are going to drift more towards the return equity of those companies than the original earnings yield that you pay for them. And I think he explicitly says that. Right. What do you say right here? He said, when, uh, what we see in our holdings, rather, is assembly of companies that are uh, partially owned and that on a weighted basis are earning more than 20% on the net tangible equity capital required to run their business. These companies also earn their profits without employing excessive levels of debt. Um, but that's pretty much what he's saying, I think, right? When he talks mm-hmm. about the actual returns of the the business that they generate. Yeah, I haven't gotten to this in any letter, in any um, article that I wrote about the letters, but I think that they've done a better job at Berkshire with the stock portfolio than with their own businesses. So like the actual private businesses? Yeah, I think there's... A, so I think that the utility and the railroad are good, but I think some of the, like, um, some of the, and you can read about this in the Semper Augustus letter. They do a really good job talking about it. But I have found for a long time looking at it that some of the smaller businesses, when taken together, aren't that impressive versus the stock, versus the price that he paid for them. So I don't think he's gotten amazing returns uh, on businesses. It, now, the good news is that the things that Berkshire's mostly weighed into, the insurance business, um, railroad and utilities, and the stock portfolio, I think those are the strong points of Berkshire. And the weak points have been the investments in more like the, manufacturers, the retailers, the service companies, whatever, that all lumped together, you know? Yeah. I don't think those have been as impressive for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. In the earlier days, they were able to buy some more impressive ones. There hasn't been another C's candy, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this pretty impressive right here? His mm-hmm. costs on Apple, uh, $35 billion. So you know what's interesting, too, what I like about his, like when you think about 
when he says that they truly think of their stocks like private businesses, he's mm-hmm. not putting the share price down. He puts the cost that they, right. you know, the average cost, not like their average share price and then what it is in the market. Yeah, and in one of the uh, articles I talked about that where the cost, you can tell from the cost in Washington Post that basically he bought Washington Post stock once and then stopped. He said that he would and um, didn't buy it after that and held it all that time and turned like $11 million into one point something billion at the peak, you know, for um, Washington Post in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gives you an idea that they're not constantly buying into it or something like that. You know, they don't show like the allocation. Like if you go back up there, it's interesting because they, they focus on like they're each their own individual investment. It does show you the shares, but it doesn't show you the share price. It shows you the percentage of the company they own, but it doesn't show you the percentage of their portfolio. It's truly as if you, um, you know, it was a private investment in the business. Yeah. I calculated that myself for this year. So Apple is now 30% of their stock portfolio. Um, and that includes like the other investments and stuff. A huge part of the other investments is Occidental. But um, the, uh, so Apple is like 30% or something. Then you have Bank of America at, I don't know, 13% or something. So those two taken together are 40 some percent of it. And then you have a few others, Wells Fargo, American Express, and Coke that get you up to a very big uh, percentage of it. So five stocks are most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one stock is like a third of the portfolio and two to three stocks is about half the portfolio. Three stocks is half the portfolio. Mm-hmm. So it is interesting that way. And that's still with a giant portfolio. I mean, think about that. When have you ever seen a stock portfolio of what, $250 billion? Yeah. Where three stocks account for half of it. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. I mean, look at the, it's funny looking at the average cost of companies that he's probably held for you know, a very long time. $248 million mm-hmm. in Moody's Corporation, now at $5.8 billion. Yeah. Yeah, there are a few others like that. Yeah, some of them he has continued to buy over time, but mm-hmm. a lot of them he hasn't. Yet. Um, I also like the discussion here. I think I'll probably write an article about it because I thought it was really on good the discussion. corporate governance. This is how you and the board. I think you and I feel the same way. I know I do. Uh, but I think most people disagree with Buffett on this. I certainly agree with him on it. Um, I would rather see directors who own large rounds of the stock they bought themselves yeah, certainly. than independent directors. Yeah. A lot of people put a lot of value on these independent directors. I think the independent directors are generally generally the least independent yeah. um, because of how high the pay is for them and how little outside money they might have yeah. from that. Can you imagine being a professional board Sitter, uh, yeah. mean, you know, I mean, a lot of them make a ton of money. Yeah, and so he, he talks about that about how much you know money they make versus how many people buying in. It was also really interesting. He ta- he actually lists if you look at that footnote all the boards he's been on. I've never known that exactly, so I like highlighted the ones that I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. He says that two of them. Someone could. Um, explain to me which two these are. Uh, two of them, he didn't own a meaningful amount of stock. Now, I believe from his biography and stuff that one of them is Omaha National Bank. I don't believe he ever owned a large amount of Omaha National Bank. Um, the I was looking and I have trouble figuring out which other one he didn't. Data documents, do you remember if he ever mm-hmm. had a meaningful stake no, in that? I have no idea. Why would he be serving on that board? I don't know that from the biography. Someone could explain that to us. And the other one, um, all the others make sense to me. So uh, the yeah, oil Washington things are Post, obviously Sanborn from map. his partnership days, I'm thinking. Um, we know about some of the others, like... Um, uh, some of the others, I mean, everything there we either know about from the partnership days or from Berkshire with a couple exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he talks about going to Portland Gas and Light, um, which was in Maine, I guess. That's Portland, Maine that he's talking about because yeah. he talks about making the trip there. Um, yeah, so, and that actually happened with uh, Coke, right? Where, uh, oh, I don't remember which one it was, so I don't want to um, slander the other one. But one of the two big proxy, um, advisory firms came out against Buffett to saying to vote against Buffett for the Coke board a few decades ago. And, um, because of, uh, because like Dairy Queen and things like that bought a lot of, uh, you know, Coke products. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
that's the kind of thing where they said he's not independent and that sort of thing. Whereas who could you want more than someone with a lot of knowledge about it and owning a lot of stock? Now, we do sometimes have people who are directors that we like in terms of them owning a lot of stock, but they might not have a lot of business knowledge. Sure. You know, you want both. And that's what he said too, right? He did talk about that. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately with family members and things that often happens where they have a big incentive to want the company to do well and everything, but they may not have a lot of knowledge about the business Mm -hmm. or something. After a few generations, that seems to always happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I'd always rather someone buy their seat at the table. You know, I don't know if he uses that exact term, but that's what I'd like to say. I love this. He's like, in job security now, it's fabulous. Board members may get politely ignored, but they seldom get fired. You've read Disney War? Yeah, love yeah. that book. Yeah. So Disney War is very interesting reading about like the board and how those people got yeah. on there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how much they... It was very strategic. Yeah. <laughs> AKA people that would just leave... Um, what was his name again? Leave him alone. Eisner? Eisner. Yeah, Michael Eisner. Yeah. Leave him alone. So anyone that would like ever try to dethrone him would get booted off. Yeah. And like Buffett said, all, I mean, all good people, all intelligent people. Yeah, of All course. very capable people who are on that Disney board. But... A lot of them got on it uh, through personal connections to Eisner mm-hmm. and stuff, yeah. And that's the thing, too, especially in microcaps. You see a lot of companies where the only shares that board members own is what was granted to them, as opposed to them actually you know, going into their savings or their own investment portfolio and buying stocks themselves. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. So that was another good discussion that I thought was really good. And all those are really timeless. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think those are great. Uh, the discussion of the insurance business, the discussion of retained earnings, and the discussion of um, the independent directors yeah. I thought was really I love this part. After Buffett, this is like typical Buffett fashion. Mm-hmm. After he just spends a couple pages criticizing a lot of people, he's got to bring his niceness in here. A pause is due. I'd like you to know that almost all the directors I've met over the years have been decent, likable, and intelligent. They dress well, made good neighbors, and were fine citizens. I've enjoyed their company. Among the group are some men and women that I would not have met except for our mutual board service and who have become close friends. So, you know, he did criticize them, but then he's saying, although they are good people, you know. But if you read between the <laughs> lines, he didn't say that the people he became close friends with were great directors of the company. No, I don't. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so that's also typical. Uh-huh. Thing. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's the way he criticizes, right? It's so funny. Yeah, and then he says, at Berkshire, we will continue to look for business-savvy directors who are owner-oriented and arrive with a strong, specific interest in our company. Yeah, and then he mentions uh, what date the annual meeting is and stuff, and are we going to mention anything about that? Yeah, yeah, after the Omaha meeting. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, I meant to say that. Yeah, we're going to be in Omaha for the Berkshire um, you know, meeting. I don't know if we're actually going to go to the meeting itself. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Uh, but we are going to be there that week. So if any potential investors want to meet up, uh, to talk about our investment services, everything we're doing with Focus Compounding Capital Management, reach out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. Andrew at focusedcompounding.com. Okay. Let's, and when is that? Uh, he says it right it's here, right? Was it right? May? Yeah, May 2nd. May 2nd. Yep. So. so we are not watching from our couch this year. We did say last year that we were going to go. And Jeff's kicking me in the butt to go. So we're going. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. May 2nd. So we'll be in Omaha when the meeting's happening. So if you want to meet up with us, you know, mm-hmm. you can do that. Yes. Reach out to me, Andrew at focusedcompounding.com. Any other thoughts on the rest of his letter? No, like I said, I, I think it's one of the best ones of recent years for investors and stuff like that generally. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's one of the best to explain Berkshire or their results. I don't feel there was actually a ton of that in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you wish you would talk more about Todd and Ted? Uh, I mean, what about Todd Combs becoming the uh, CEO of yeah, that's a good, Geico? Yeah, that's a good point. I was just surprised that there was zero mention of any of that. That is weird letter. that there's no mention of that part. If I, he I definitely mean, I keeps don't them out of the... Even a sentence mentioning that about the change at Geico. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that, but I don't remember even a sentence about that. Uh, I do think I mean, that he probably knows they're going to get a ton of questions at the, at the meeting. Yeah. You know? I do think like just from someone who manages money and stuff, it's, he does it the way that I would want it. You wouldn't want to work for someone and have them comment on which stocks you own and which stocks the other person owns. If you notice, he will say he knows which ones they own, but he says it's owned by someone else at the company. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't say. say which one it yeah. is. And I think that's very good because you know you can own something that Buffett doesn't agree with you on, mm-hmm. and so he lets them do what they need to do. Well, what so, Charlie say about it? He said when Buffett and his when he was a young man or whatever, and Charlie called Todd and Ted like young, <laughs> um, he that Buffett didn't like to be bothered or questioned on his ideas, so Buffett doesn't do that to them. Yeah. And I mean, it's sort of, it's interesting that they're going to have two people talking, um, uh, Ajit and Greg. Yeah. Um, but that's part of it is like some people don't want to talk at these meetings and stuff. That's part of the deal is that, you know, they like running their business and not, you know, giving a whole, uh, giving a whole speech at the, you know, um, at, at the Berkshire meeting, they're not public figures. Yeah. And it's very possible that's true for the investment managers. Definitely that they wouldn't want to talk about stuff. If I was managing money for Berkshire or something, if you were, I'm sure you'd want to be left alone that way and not ha- appear at an annual meeting and talk about why do you own charter communications or yeah. something like that. You know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. No, definitely. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself. As I did say, we are going to be in Omaha the week of Berkshire Hathaway. So reach out to me uh, the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. Reach out to me, Andrew at focuscompounding.com. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. We are on our way to being the number one value investing podcast on YouTube in the world. We are the number one value investing podcast in the world, but we're going to take over the YouTube space as well. So I want to thank everybody so much for all the support. Uh, somebody did say, um, they, they missed me saying, uh, thanks for supporting us. It helps keep the lights on. And they said, you never found any humor in it, but he did. So helps keep the lights on. Hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, leave us a rating review, and we will see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.